from the next speaker, my colleague, Dr. Ivana Bartenberg, fellow team member in the ERC calendar project here at UCL, and also fellow team member in the previous calendar project here. Uh, in our project, she works on Isaac Israeli's Yisod Alam, where she writes all the intelligent parts, what the science means, there are areas of modern mathematics, linguistics, and history and philosophy of science. Current research is involved in medieval Hebrew science, science in Hebrew, I guess is the meaning of Hebrew science, mathematics, calendar reckoning, and also the creation of Hebrew scientific terminology. And we should all look out for her forthcoming book, which is coming out uh, in December. In December. I was told by the book, and the series editor who's here, mm-hmm. which is uh, the 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 epistle of the number by Ibn al Akhtab, the transmission of Arabic mathematics to Hebrew circles in medieval Sicily. And today she will speak about classical versus popular mathematics in medieval Hebrew, mathematical and calendrical treatises. Thank you. Thank you, Israel. So um, I have to say that um, I've always been interested in what authors tell us in their introductions. So it's not, although I'm, of course, interested in scientific context, uh, sorry, uh, contents of uh, astronomical, mathematical, and calendrical works, you can really find precious information about uh, what authors, uh, where they are, and who they are, and also often information about their readership or the people around them. And um, this can also teach us about what the environment, what kind of science um, people knew or mostly didn't know or didn't practice very, very well. So my first part, the first part of the talk, which I think will be most of my talk, uh, will actually, I, w- I will show you a few examples um, that actually can mirror something about something we are very interested in today, which is what did people know, not just these wonderful scholars, you know, who are you know, mostly um, immersed in, in Arabic science or in, in Greek science. So um, what we want to have some answer about what is happening around them. And then very shortly, I'll, I'll just, because um, you know, I'm, I'm concentrating on math, although I'll show something from astronomy, I couldn't help it. Um, but you know, it's, when you talk about mathematics, and unless you talk about you know, Euclidean geometry and suddenly you get something so bizarre as non-Euclidean geometry, some a new type of mathematics or a new mathematical model that comes along. At least, you know, until the early modern period, if you look at the history of, of mathematics, you can't really expect mathematics to be different. You know, math is math. That's what I, I, I like about it, that it's not, you know, fuzzy and, and it's not, um, it's just, you know, something very solid and, and something that you can rely on. So it was very difficult to find, you know, examples of uh, a different. I mean, it's impossible actually to find a different of a different mathematics, you know, maybe used by by um, less educated people or so on. But what you can find is maybe methods that are not, you know, certain ways of applications of certain calculations. And I, I mean, I have the materials here, but I'm not going to bore you a lot with that because. Uh, um, it's more about the fact that you can either do straight mathematics in a mathematical way, just you know, do multiplication, addition, whatever you're doing, um, or you 
do it in a very slow way and which is probably related to um, mental math so you're not even though this is uh, you know we're dealing with written treatises uh, at, the, at the end of the day there was a whole pr a calculation procedure at least maybe in the history of the birth of this treatise that people were actually calculating things in their head and not using let's say written algorithms for let's talk about basic uh, mathematical operations so with this introduction I would like to go to um, a very important uh, figure in, in the medieval uh, Hebrew um, scientific library and he's called Abraham uh, Barchia or probably Barchaya um, and he, he is um, from Barcelona from the 12th century and at some point he went to Tzarfat uh, or um, northern France, somewhere in France, I mean um, Professor Kanafugel and I've been talking about it and, and Sasha as well, this is not, I mean the term is not uh, very clear but he, he went outside of his, um, um, of the Iberian Peninsula and of uh, Barcelona and uh, before we look at the actual text I would just like to mention because he's a very important figure he's considered the father of medieval Hebrew mathematics okay what does it mean I mean Abraham Bakhia was highly immersed in, in Arabic mathematics and Arabic astronomy but uh, it is the encounter with Jewish communities in Christian lands that did not speak Arabic and that did not know much or anything about Arabic mathematics that at this point in, in uh, Jewish history that there is bir the birth or the um, renaissance if you can say scientific renaissance of the Hebrew language and Abraham Bakhia is, a, is a, you know, a, a very important representative of mathematics um, so he basically wrote the first um, Hebrew mathematical text which is called Chibur HaMeshicha VeHatishboret a book on mensuration and mensuration or, or uh, measuring areas and uh, and of course I mean as you heard I'm, I'm really interested in um, how scientific terms came to be and imagine you're writing um, a book on you know on a scientific subject but um, you don't really have a lot of mathematical words you know at your disposal there's a bit of math in the Bible, a little bit in, in rabbinic literature, but definitely not terms that would be, you know, adequate or, or would um, that would actually cover all the mathematical knowledge of the 12th century the, um, that um, was uh, known or <coughs> was possessed by uh, Abraham Bachia. So now. So, so this is text, it's mostly about, uh, um, I can call it uh, practical geometry, so how do you measure the areas and surfaces of, of different uh, figures and so on. But what really intrigued me, and this, this I've seen, I mean, this is, I saw this a long time ago, and I found it a bit even as a, when I started uh, uh, learning the field of medieval Hebrew science, so I found his formulation even a bit cruel. Um, but I, I mean, and then at some point I showed it to Israel Zanman, my colleague, um, and he said, "Oh, it's not so bad." But um, but the point for today is, what can we learn about Jews in France, whichever part of France or other northern areas, 
What do we know about their mathematical knowledge? So he says, and this is my translation, so I'm, I'm happy if, you know, after the talk somebody has better suggestions for translating. So I have seen that the majority of the scholars of our generation in the land of Telfat, so France, more or less, are not familiar with measurement of land, and they are not handy uh, in their partition. They express a great disdain towards this matter and divide the lands between the heirs and associates by approximation and exaggeration. Since this is not regarded as being false and sinful, most of them are malicious and err shamefully, and each one of them has sinned in the error as much as the approximation is shameful. Do not even imagine that they actually measure and calculate. Indeed, they approximate and cheat. No less than that. And I claim that they do, do not count in order, but they count by cheating. As is written, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, is something as I am here, since there is no bigger fraud in the world uh, perpetuated by them. It could occur that in their calculation, the owner of one third gets one quarter, and the owner of one quarter gets one third, and you do not have greater theft and cheat than this. So I think if he had been a rabbi in Ashkenaz, uh, he would have been a very tough one in regards to all the questions that Professor Kanar Frogo was talking about this morning. So what do we understand? Here comes this great scholar with very, you know, when you, I mean, I've studied math myself, so you, you, you study very precise, you know, theories and you know, two is two, and two is a half, and a half is two and a half, and you just, and then he's looking, I mean, I, I assume that he's, um, he's not just trying to justify writing the text by saying, oh, I have to teach these people. I think he's actually telling us, you know, he's portraying us a, a realistic image of his environment. That's how I feel. If you disagree, I'm happy to hear about this. So what happens is that, um, here we see that there is, um, so when he's saying, what is their big sin? It's not that, they, I mean, they have some idea of calculation. I mean, they're not completely ignorant, yes? So they have some idea, but apparently they don't do the calculations in the right way or they, they approximate. So, so and, and, and Barchia seems to be very concerned when it comes to, to division or, um, or partition of, uh, of heritage. Yes, because, uh, oh sorry, inheritance in English, sorry, yeah. Because um, um, if the end result is that you make arithmetical errors in this case, yes, what happens at the end? That people, I mean, the, the, um, the heirs don't receive what they deserve to receive. You know, either they receive too much or too little. And this, is, uh, this seems to have kind of worked up Valkhia. Um, um, because honestly, I, d I don't think that he really needed an excuse to write a book, you know, because some, you, I mean, if you look at, at the literature, it's often, oh, I had friends who came and asked me to write them a book, you know, my, like my friend Ibn al-Akhtab, he's uh, in Syracuse, and, and he has this Jewish community, people from Jewish community coming to him and say, please write us a book, okay? So um, this is a different there's like a necessity, a burning necessity. We, I have to teach these ignorant. And uh, I mean, again, I don't want to use the word ignorant because they do seem to have mathematical knowledge, but they just don't do it. They need to be aware of precision and maybe um, improve their algorithms. 
and uh, was behind uh, the Jewish calendar was, was a legitimate thing to do. When it came to mathematics, well, that's a slightly different story because um, not all areas of mathematics were uh, surviving uh, copies, and that's probably a reflection of what happened in, in on the ground in the Middle Ages, because some areas were considered uh, foreign. You know, for example, the book that my book that is coming out now—it's on the first Hebrew algebra text, uh, but it was written in Sicily in the 14th century, which is very, very late. Because if you think of algebra. You know that was born in, in in Baghdad in the ninth century, so to have a, a book on algebra uh, 500 years later, that's very very late. Unlike arithmetic, that was very uh, popular um, in medieval Hebrew science. Also, um, geometry, Euclid's elements were a big seller, like over four, 40 manuscripts have survived. So there's a certain like uh, choice, you know, that you know, certain so geometry, astronomy and arithmetic were very useful to know. Algebra probably uh, less, you know, it's, it's <coughs> something a bit more abstract, maybe even, um, so it wasn't necessary, okay? So it's, it's that is, we always have to, to keep uh, that in mind. Now, um, we come to this astronomical um, text, Surat um, Aret, and so in it, it appears in the first chapter, this part here, and he's talking about the shape um, of the firmament. And as we know, based on, on um, uh, Greek astronomy and later Arabic astronomy, so the spherical models, yes, they're very, I mean, in the Greek uh, mathematics, of course, a, a circle and a sphere is something perfect. You know, in modern mathematics, you say it has like infinity of uh, sym the symmetry group is infinite, so it's really something perfect. So if you could build your astronomical models using circles, sometimes combination of them, because you know the uh, lunar motion is not exactly a circle, so you need other devices, but you can still combine circles together and present you know, uh, the behavior of um, the planet according to, to, I mean, in this uh, spherical model. So it's very, it was very important, of course, on, in a book on astronomy, to the Hebrew uh, um, reading audience, it was important to give them the basics. And the basics is basically everything is spherical. But what do we learn from this passage? He says, a person cannot perceive um, about the model or shape of the firmament and its figure as being flat and spread out like a flat shawl. Um, from east to west, as has occurred in the heart of stupid and ignorant people, that the planets or the stars of the firmament move in a straight line, which has no curvature. This cannot be because the structure or the pattern of this design, according to, uh, meaning flat model, according to everyone who scrutinizes it, makes the body of all the stars or planets um, to be revealed while rising upon the earth in the east side, look smaller in their size than the measure of the body which is visible to them in mid-sky. Yes, and uh, also when they come to set in the west side, it goes on, because according to this design, the line emerging from earth to the west and east side will be longer than the line which emerges towards in mid-sky. It will result, or it will be fitting, for their bodies in mid-skies to seem bigger than it seems in the east and west sides because since every body 
or two bodies equal in size, the body of the one is seen over a long line will seem smaller than it does on a line which is shorter. This is not how stars and planets seem to the eyes of human beings. The sages attached to the body of stars and planets in the east and west side in mid-sky is one value and one weight in the measure as the line which emerges from Earth to the great uh, sphere that surrounds it um, of one value. Okay, so basically, and then it goes on actually, but I didn't, um, so um, what is he basically saying? He's trying to prove, like this is a, well, let's call it in modern, you know, from modern perspective, this is a semi-scientific uh, proof actually that it cannot be that the, um, that the, that the stars and the planets are moving on a straight line. Why? Because then if they would seem, you know, when they're rising, so they're far away from you, whereas at some point they come closer, and that means, and this is um, based on, on um, Greek physics or um, scientific principles that say that if you have a body which doesn't change its size, yes, of course, I mean, this is a taken, then um, the closer it is to you, it would seem bigger. But as has been observed and, and written about by, um, by the sages, this is not possible. And therefore, it is only the spherical um, shape of the firmament that can, um, can apply. But what do we learn? I mean, um, what, what does it mean? It means, I mean, why did, did he, he didn't, I mean, he could have just written a book on astronomy and say, Okay, this is what you know, um, or write the book on geometry and just do whatever he's doing, like giving the, the, the practical information that you need. You know, this is uh, the shape of the earth, this is you know, how you uh, calculate uh, triangular field, this is what you do. No, he and I think these very short glimpses just what, what do they tell us? So, so maybe there were people so. Uh, this was probably written, this was written before his calendrical work, which was also in Safat. It's, it's very likely that this was also written in Safat, okay? Uh, so in France. So he's talking about the same people uh, from before, the same audience. Why do you think it was written in Safat? Well, just judging from all his works and when they were written, uh, we know it was written because um, in Sefer Aibu, in his calendrical work, he's already referring to Tzorat Aves. So it was written um, The problem is that Raiti, I think Tzarfat is, is, is no difference, but Raiti wrote Hachmed Tzarfat doesn't mean he visited. He, he wrote, he read their writings. In other words, Raiti here means he's aware. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was there or that he was yeah, there for but, extended but if stay. You, if you read his calendrical right. in the introduction, right. he, he explains why he's writing the book on the Jewish calendar. And he says, if I found in the book, in the land of Tzarfat, any books already written on the Jewish calendar, or if I, in Spain, so he's looking back. Right, um, but again, it's a literary, that's the point. In other words, it's, it's, it's not clear that he went and he inspected. He's doing a literary analysis. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, go ahead. if you look at the yeah. actual formulation, I think this is, uh, okay, I don't know if he, I, he may have used the word can here, but I'm not entirely sure that's why. If, if he puts himself there, that's one uh, thing, I but so far these are, these are quite possibly geographic you know, I know that over there, you know, Raiti means I know that over, you know, I see, I know mm -hmm. that over there they do write this, they do, don't write that, they do do this, they don't do that. He could have visited for a moment, but it doesn't necessarily mean at all that he's writing it in that milieu. Okay, he's, getting, he's getting knowledge, he knows what they're doing in Sarfat, mm -hmm. maybe 
physically he went there, or maybe he read, but there's, I don't know if there's any indication of either of these. If you get the word Khan, if he says Khan, that, that's a different story. Okay, I, right, I can write to that. you okay, about, 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 about this. Okay, so here, what do we have? We have people around him, and um, that seem to have a very, um, you know, um, straight perceptions of uh, the um, of the firmament, of the skies, yes. So I think, again, this is um, some some reflection of of the ignorance of, of the people. I mean, I'm sure that even today, some people would I'm say, sure that, that <coughs> for example, people still think, you know, I, I've heard it, you know, earth earth that the, even the earth is flat or that it's actually the sun. Actually, it's quite convincing. I mean, if you're not, you know, and looking too much child, into it. You ask a child to draw yeah. a picture of the, or the uh, you know, they would have flat earth, they would have a straight <coughs> line for the sky. Mm -hmm. So it would be the more natural perception of an uneducated person to imagine this plant. Yes, also because we live on a very limited area, surface. So in term, even mathematically speaking, it approximately it is actually a fact. It's only, you know, you have to go out to actually realize that this is a... And, and the, the question remains whether the rabbis of the Talmudic period all saw many few themselves thought that yeah. the earth was somehow flat. Yeah. So that again, part of this critique, I think, is against mm -hmm. those Rabbis. rabbinic yeah. slash Tal Talmudists, yeah. non-scientifically, you know, non-university yeah. pedigree here, who are time. still going yeah. with the old rabbinic view, you know, mm -hmm. or, or an old rabbinic view, even if that's not the only view or the majority view, mm -hmm. there's certainly, you know, an old view that could that could somehow do that. So that that's, it seems to be almost a cultural there, yes, I mean, you're talking about this, this part, I mean, the yeah. way I perceive it is also yeah. like, there seems to be, uh, yes? I did want to interrupt, but to me it seems he just takes it over from Ptolemy. I mean, Ptolemy, the, the Elmagist starts proving that the Earth is not flat, so mm -hmm. he starts out proving that mm -hmm. the Earth is not flat. Yes, but, the, but what about the reference, no, but I'm talking about the reference, uh, not the contents, but the reference to those people, stupid people, who believe that the, that the, the stars and the planets, um, they all move in a straight line. But this seems to be his own addition. That's what I mean. That's why I emphasize I mean, I <coughs> this. I mean, um, okay. Now, how much time have I got? Uh, you wanted to leave 20 minutes for discussion, or you want to yeah. go a little longer? Yeah, I don't, I don't need much more time, but just to know... Uh, uh, it's another, at least another uh, 11 to 12 minutes. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so far... Um, oh, I j so I would like to mention um, here, I mean, uh, don't have to look through the entire thing, but uh, in the text of uh, Isaac Israeli, Sodolam was mentioned today, and it's a text that Israel and I are working on. Uh, as, as Nadia said before, a legit, like, really... Um, probably the, the text of highest scientific level in the Hebrew literature, yes, 14th century, and it was used even up to the 17th century as a source of mathematical, astronomical, and calendrical knowledge. So, um, and I want to mention, it's um, quite a lengthy passage, so I left it out, and because I think, I think you got the general idea. But um, so Isaac Israeli, so we're jumping now two centuries after uh, Barchia, but Isaac Israeli read Barchia and he, he used his material, sometimes he criticized him. So there is, you know, a, a little literary connection between these two guys. And um, so 
in the first book of Yesodolam, Foundations of the World, it's a book that is dedicated to mathematics, and most of it is dedicated to, to geometry and trigo uh, spherical trigonometry. And the part on uh, geometry includes a partial transmission of uh, the Euclidean elements. I have I've analyzed and looked at the traditional transmission of Euclid's elements, and I've seen um, that actually Isaac Israeli it was not using the known class, I mean, known, not known, but what we nowadays know as the classical uh, transmission of Euclid, he was using something else, either translating probably from the Arabic himself or, or using another translation. This is part of my research now to um, get a full answer to that. Now, if you've ever read, uh, I think some of you have read Euclid's Element, and so, Sasha, you're smiling, you read it every day, right? Yeah, he's yeah. So, um, so Euclid has so a very important uh, Greek um, mathematical work in geometry, and the first thing you see in the book is a definition of a point. Okay, so a point is that uh, which has no um, measure. So this is the Heath um, translation. And now, if you look in, in Isaac Israeli's translation, so he's translating. Well, that's another issue. It's not for today because that's not the, the topic. So he's more or less conveying the idea, you know, the, the Euclidean definition of a point, but that's not the point. The point is that Isaac Israeli, similarly to uh, Balchia, is talking about all these stupid people who think that if you put a thousand and then thousands of thousands of points together, that you get more than a point, which is not the point. I mean, as you know, the point has no measure, right? So... Yes, by definition, even if you add two million, or as Ali G said, one killion uh, points together, it's not going to get you more than a point. So there again, and I mean, this is actually really fascinating, and I'll be, um, really, I'll keep my eyes open uh, for other treatises, where you, where you can see what the author thinks about people, you know, what, how they perceive mathematical or astronomical ideas. You know, it's really gives you an interesting uh, view. So uh, that's the first part, which is, as I say, the majority uh, of, of my talk about this. And um, now I would like to just to have a quick look at a text, which is the subject of my second book, um, on um, uh, Jacob R. Samson, or Samsonides, maybe we can call him, <laughs> book on the Jewish calendar from 12th century uh, 12th century northern France. This is an author that is an Ashkenazi, so um, Central European of Central European origin. He doesn't. He's uh, part of the school of Rashi, who is a very famous Talmud scholar. I mean, very famous. You know, the, um, um, yes, the, I think probably one of the most important figures in, in uh, uh, Jewish halacha. So. Um, Jacob R. Samson was raised in this school that whose um, focus was not science per se, but rather um, religious or um, theological interpretations of the Bible. So Russia was very famous for that, and of rabbinic literature. And um, 
but he also wrote a, t a treatise on the Jewish calendar. It's a mutilated uh, text which survived in one copy. Um, and and I have to say, being used to more like uh, you know all these scholars that come from the Jewish uh, medieval scholars that come from an Arabic <coughs> background, a scientific background, it, it it was not very easy for me to really get used to the style and you know he's as you can see in chapter 27 he's basically he I'm not going to to bore you with calendrical um, you know um, details uh, or I'll try to minimize it but you know he's supposed to tell you um, how to calculate the um, uh, the vernal equinox of a certain year, year 4883 in the Jewish calendar, um, compared to the first uh, vernal equinox that was at a certain time. And what you have to do for every year, so 4883, you have to take into account one day and one quarter. It has to do with the uh, distance between seasons. Don't, that's not the point. Okay. But if you were like to talk in a way that you know Abraham Balchia or, or Abraham Ibn Ezra, another prominent uh, Jewish scholar against the Faradi uh, scholar, they would just tell you, you have to make this calculation. Okay, take uh, four thousand eight hundred eighty-three and multiply it by one and a quarter, and you know, that's it. But here, not only it takes him forever to do the calculation, and it's. Uh, um, and whoever is interested, I'll send him uh, this. <coughs> but he also, he, he doesn't write in a way that is very mathematical for me, in, because he adds a lot of either biblical or rabbinic layers that I think he's doing it uh, also to embellish the text, but probably because this is the way he's used to writing. So, so he starts, he wants, so all he, like the purpose of, uh, of the um, great part of this chapter is doing this multiplication. And then there's another multiplication, uh, I mean, it's the same principle, but somebody, you know, a mathematician like uh, Valchia could have written four lines, you know, and said, you have to do this, multiply four times by, and uh, use, because you know how to multiply, yes, and somebody like Abraham Ibn Ezra wrote a book on arithmetic and explain what is uh, multiplication, you just do it. But if you read through it, and we don't have to read through, through the entire thing, so it's just very, very lengthy, and he's doing it like, it's probably, I mean, also this is what Sasha told me, this is probably mental math. So you're, you're not just doing this mathematics like in the way, in uh, according to the uh, Arabic tradition, which also we have like very specific um, information that people were writing on, on uh, parchment or paper, so it was written calculation. Here we see something that seems to be like, because you, you kind of, you break down the 4,000 and you do a calculation and then you try to ease it and, and to, to make it simpler and then you go back to the ease. But it's, uh, what we have to understand is that you don't need the big number because if <coughs> you multiply uh, 4,000 and so on, you get a relatively big number. But at the end of the day, and I'm not sure this was mentioned today, but um, all we are really, really interested in the Jewish calendar is to know when things happen during the week, okay? So we have seven days, 
each day has 24 hours. Every hour is subdivided into 1,080 parts. Then in one case, you have to subdivide it further, but that's not important. So you have a very discrete yes, uh, uh, division of the week into parts, and you just need to know when something, when something happens, you know, uh, when a season starts, when the new moon happens, and so on. Okay, so at the end of the day, you can throw away all multiples of sevens. Okay, you see, so there's a whole. So w what you need to do is do this. Uh, you know, uh, either divide by seven and, and look at the reminder, or um, you know, look at it modulus seven in very modern notation. <coughs> and this, by the way, Balchia, um, who also wrote on the Jewish calendar, so he's presenting it in a very, very mathematical way. So even a calculation like this, he would. He would just be very concise and, 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 and so on. And on top of it, as you can see, he's, he's adding all these, um, um, some of them are biblical citations, and he's maybe he's preparing his reader psychologically to the <sighs> very tiring, even for me to, look, you know, to, to go through the entire uh, calculation. So he's giving you all these uh, biblical citations, but they also serve, yes, as... Uh, a way to, legitima to, to legitimize the veracity of what is there. So this is very, like if I were to make a distinction, we've been talking about this, so um, authors coming from uh, Sephardi uh, culture, Arabic background and so on, they would not, I mean, uh, when it comes to math and calculations, they would not use all these um, biblical and Talmudic um, decorations, they don't, it's just However, in the Ashkenazi literature, we find a very strong need, probably, and again, I mean, I'm not judging them or anything, it's just, it's really a different état uh, d'esprit, yeah, so this is a, a very um, different way. And this goes on, as you see, and, and, and on. I just want to leave time for discussion, so um, I don't want to go into that. Um, but what I did choose, I choose, chose something from, which comes at a later chapter, just to because this is like to ha not to have this ocean of information. Um, even something very simple, very, very basic, as at some point you have to, to, to calculate, to multiply 200 by 7. So he says uh, 200 times 7 are 7 times 200. So when I first saw that, I was like, and I remember I showed this particular thing at a very early workshop. And I said, oh, wow, he's talking about the... Um, commutativity law of multiplication, you know, for every A and B, um, A times B is B times A. And, you know, Sasha and Kinneret, who was there, um, they said, uh-uh, forget about beautiful, I mean, it's not, why is he saying this? Because it's, if you have to do two, 200 times 7, what do you do? 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 7, yes, and that's not, uh, you know, it's easy to, to make, um, an error. However, if you invert it, yes, what ha it's much easier to do. And the same with the second, it comes uh, um, later in the phrase, um, 50 times 7. So it's easier to do 7 times 50. So again, you, have to, you really have to understand that this is all like, it's really down to earth uh, mathematics. And, and I have to say, okay, we don't have, I mean, the, the, the only surviving uh, manuscript that exists with some excerpts in, in, in another manuscript, they don't tell us much about, I mean, more about the mathematical knowledge of, of uh, Baruch Samson himself 
or his readers because it's all you can see is just this kind of mathematics. Okay, I don't even want to call it math. It's really like like very basic arithmetic. Yes, just do adds, throw away, and, and so on. Um, okay, so I think I'll stop at this point, and I'm happy for questions and feedback. into the discussion more than ask only you. Um, for example, what Bakhtia uh, describes in his introduction uh, on land division, yeah? Do we find any evidence in response to literature and uh, any sort of rabbinic literature, uh, is there any evidence of problems arising because of uh, the situation with uh, mathematical, numerical knowledge? I don't know, but yeah, there absolutely, absolutely are. And again, what he's describing in terms of estimation was something of common practice. And what he's saying is that estimation or cutting the corners here, you know, technically is going to lead to one party being how he gets from a third to a fourth and vice versa, that's already, you know, gross error. But but and again the question is he's writing in the first part of the 12th century, how much of that other material is he aware? That's really the smoking gun. Mm -hmm. What does he know from the North? But I think that, again, this is all a matter of training. If you're trained mathematically, you'll, the, you'll think mathematically. If you're, tr if you're not trained that way, you'll think halakhically with the, the, you know, look, the Talmud has all kinds of, of mathematical, you know, numerical things for how the temple service work, how many, and how do you divide. So there's all kinds of math, but the math is, is secondary to the to getting to the to the performance uh, to the performance. The the um, uh, I mean the interesting question of, of someone like Arvon Bachia is just to, just but, but so I think that has to be checked. What how are others doing it in the north? You know who's he talking about here, and can we know? But certainly not everybody is doing it in such a um, scientific way as he is. That's for sure. Right, and again. As I pointed out, he's not a halachist, <laughs> so it's interesting. He's got this criticism, um, and he's not criticizing his fellow Sfaradim because apparently they, at least some of them, know better. He's criticizing, you know, which is a you know 12th century criticism by Sfaradim of Ashkenazim is his old hat. Um, the other interesting thing, though, I, I think you're quite right, by the way, of Yaakov Bar Shimshon. He's not tra he's trained in rabbinics and Talmudics and Bible and all these things. So if he's going to do the calculations, he's going to give you. The, the, the rabbinic well, biblical loci of that. Here's an interesting test question. Avon Barchia's book, Migilat HaMegaleh, mm -hmm. where he writes about literally, you know, re revealing the scroll of revelation here, where he sort of is talking about messianic process. Mm -hmm. There you have him talking both about numbers mm -hmm. and about verses and about rabbinic ideas, because if you're talking about the Messiah coming, it can't just be a numerical calculation. So again, it's, it, it seems to be very need need based. If I'm doing if I'm doing, you know, land measurement, so let me get my slide rule out. If I'm doing uh, uh, rabbinics, rabbinics. If I'm doing something in the middle, in other words, uh, uh, messianic and, and you know this is the old Gerson Cohn article that's Spanish. This is by way of a very good example. You know this example I'm sure. Uh, Gerson Cohn argues that Spanish and his messianic postures of Ashkenazim and Sfaradid, which is really I think very even though people have criticized some of it, including me, but that's not the point. Um, uh, uh, Sfaradim did messianic calculations scientifically. 
uh, Eva Krakowski has an article. Eva Krakowski has an article out now where she's not so sure he's right, but it seems to be they try to do it mathematically. Mm-hmm. Ashkenazim have wild dreams. They have gematria, but fanciful. You'll, no slide rules. In Spain, it sounds like if we're going to do a messianic calculation in a, in a start of New Year, I've got to get out a slide rule and a, and a calculator because just telling people I had a vision is not going to go. Mm-hmm. In the Ashkenazic orbit, where the slide rules and the calculator is not working so well, quite to the contrary, it's going to be remazim, fanciful stuff, sukim. So I think that's this all. I'm not sure what which caused what, but this all dovetails down a whole down a whole continuum. I think it has to do with discipline and what they're used to doing and what their what their aim is here. But what is I mean, coming back to Nadia's question, do you know any specific responsa that would so so the problem? I I know stuff later than Avram Barchia. The question is, what does he have? earlier, right, knows that that would, that would work in his period. He's in a period where, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rashi is only dead about 20, 30 years, so we're not, so in terms of, of Ashkenazic literary production, we're not, you know, in an 11th century yeah, as fragmentary. Well, so there are things to look at. All right, I have to do a lot of homework for you, but we'll do okay. homework. Yeah, we'll yeah. do homework. Exactly. Um, yeah, thank you very much for but I just wanted to add a few things, and mm-hmm. it's a really question. But um, so in this in this text which I spoke about this morning, the um, Exaston manuscript of Masaryk, <coughs> the earliest manuscript mm-hmm. we have, but which preserves a text which is more or less contemporary with um, uh, Jacob, and um, there also you find the same sort of arithmetics. Uh, I think even much worse. Yeah, you told me. Yeah, I mean, the much, Justine much has shown. I mean, it was a yeah, 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 to read the manuscript because the scribe had made full of errors. So just to reconstruct what the calculation was, mm-hmm. and then you translate it, and the result is not really readable. So what we've produced in the end is a, an edition of the text of a translation, which are not really readable. But <coughs> but the thing is, I mean, it's really infuriating for from a modern perspective because. We, you know, if I ask anyone now to work out 4,722, uh, you know, divided by eight, you know, they'll just pull out their, their phone or whatever, and they'll right. do it in an instant with, a, with an electronic device. Um, what, what he does is to, exactly as you described, which is to, to break up every single component. So you've got 4,000, and we've got 800. And, and then you, you have 30. to look and to throw away multiples. It's made yeah. up of 3,000 and 1,000. The reason why he does that is then the 3,000 I can break up into this, and then, but I've got to remember that I've kept the 1,000, so yeah, I have 10 minus 9. So let's go back now to the 1,000, and you've got to remember what these 1,000 are. And meanwhile, you've got to keep in the back of your mind that 870, whatever it was, which you talked about. So the whole thing is terribly uh, cumbersome. The, as, as a literary work, the, the result is, is as a totally unreadable. But it seemed to me that what he's really doing is replicating a mental process, yeah. which is what we call mental maths. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and, and, and that, because that's how we think. If we want to work something in our heads, we do actually break things up into yeah. components. And, and even though it's a, at some point he writes, I'm writing to you in Daniel, so it's definitely not, I mean, but but I think he's, he's looking at the tradition, you know, and maybe he was teaching, I mean, he, he wrote it down at some point, but uh, he may have actually taught it to people sitting around him who were not taking notes or doing, or even knowing how to do he's written sort of working, He's sort of talking as he's thinking as he's going along. Almost. Yes, you get the impression yes, he's thinking as he's writing. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing is like this. I, I've looked at quite a few, bi- I mean, the last few years I've been looking at all different manuscripts and so on, but I, I've looked at quite a few Ashkenazi 
manuscripts and canons are there one <coughs> particular which one he ought to really work on which is uh, uh, a compendium dated to, I think, 1300 in Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, a calendar, a Nazi calendar compendium. And there also you find these uh, weird mental remarks. And, uh, and that, that's important, you see, because it, it's not, it, it's later, yes, it's later in the Middle Ages, later in the Middle Ages, we still find in Ashkenazi manuscripts these, uh, this way of doing things. So it, it's something we should never really get out of. Yes. And I think this also raises another issue, which is more generally the issue of what we mean by popular. Because um, are these really popular maths? The fact that they're not what we educated people would do, the fact that they are uh, sort of primitive mental maths, uh, they're not sort of sophisticated as we would find in, in Safadi texts. Um, but does that make them popular? If, after all, this is the kind of math you find in all the literary works in Ashkenaz running through the Middle Ages. Uh, this is really elitist from, a, from, a, from an Ashkenazi, yes, from an Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi context. Viewpoint. This is not yes. popular, it's elitist. Yes, and it, it's interesting to see that it's, well, it's, okay, the Ascala period was really the time when you can see real progress in, in Hebrew science in, in books in, in Ashkenaz, and there was, a, of course, a surge and a big but I'm not sure how. I mean, if you, I mean, for, I, I, I look at things, you know, but very uh, randomly. So, uh, also calendrical mathematical treatises written before, and, and it just seems that the level is really, really low. I mean, it's and it it, it just took so long for all this uh, Sephardic tradition to, on the one hand, the Sephardic tradition to actually penetrate in some way or the other into Ashkenaz, and of course at the same time the development of science, math. In, in Ashkenaz, in the non-Jewish environment, which of course one has to take into account. So um, there's definitely, I think, the, 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 the picture that we need fine-tuning to see, you know, what is happening when and, you know, whether you can actually point, maybe there is a point, I don't know, in the 16th century or 15th century, we can say, oh, look, there, there's something, you know, that was, that um, uh, is of higher scientific um, level that may actually pave the way to small, let's call it, serious science. I don't know, I mean, this is another project we could do. Yes. Thank you. Good. Any more questions?